Sometime before the pandemic, I auditioned for a small off-Broadway production of the Lerner and Lowe musical The Day Before Spring. Now, it was at the York Theatre, which is known for reviving or refreshing older musicals that may not get done very much. Well, I wasn't cast in that particular production, and like most failed auditions, I put them right out of my mind as soon as they're done. But I did remember the director behind the table. And so I finally reached out to bring him onto the podcast. Hi, this is Mark Aceto. I use the pronouns he or they, but the one that I'm most interested in is we, because I'm a collaborative artist. That's what I do for a living. I'm a writer and a director of musicals. I am from Bayonne, New Jersey, but raised in a little town called Westfield, and I live now on the Upper West Side of Manhattan by Lincoln Center. Now, no, I didn't bring Mark here to ask why I wasn't cast or get that much-needed feedback that we actors rarely get. No, instead he's here to talk about the work that he does as both a writer and director, and bringing another set of eyes and perspective to a particular production, whether it's classic works by Lerner and Lowe or contemporary musicals like Allegiance, which opened in 2015, starring George Takai. But Mark is also a writer of his own work as well, from plays and novels and even short films. And through each of those mediums, he's had his stumbles and failures. But he'd be the first to tell you how grateful he is for the lessons learned through each of them. What I discovered was I was so much more satisfied failing on someone else's terms, but succeeding on my own, than if I had succeeded on somebody else's terms, but failed on my own. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning Top 25 Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer, talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Mark. It really is a pleasure to meet you. I'm happy to have you. I'm in a new place. You're at home. I mean, it's a it's a great time to be uh, recording on Zoom these days, right? Well, re-meet, right? Apparently, we have had an encounter before. Yes. I knew you looked familiar. Yes, it was uh, briefly because that was back in what year was Day Before Spring? The show, I think, was February of, of 2019. Uh, and you auditioned and I apparently uh, did not cast you. Uh, so which, sorry which about happens. that. No, no, which, which happens. <laughs> I, I did a study one time and found that about 95% of my auditions don't go anywhere, you know, which is mm. uh, f- probably pretty good for us uh, as actors. You know, we, we just yeah, keep going and keep sure. going. So yeah, a 5% success rate has done pretty good for me so far. So it's more than okay. And now with theater coming back, I'm happy to uh, see if that trend can continue. But for yourself, as you said, we met, it was an adaptation of The Day Before Spring, which was a Lerner and Lowe classic musical. You did another one of their musicals, Paint Your Wagon, coming to it with fresh eyes and and remounting a production, which is different for you because you mostly do your own original works, your humorous works, whether it's books, novels, writing the book for musicals. So 
doing these other people's works, was that a different side of your creative energies? That's fascinating. I, it actually did not use a different part of my brain because I, you know, I started out as a writer. I started off as a novelist and a journalist and then uh, almost immediately started teaching and editing. So I discovered very quickly that I had a facility for helping other people tell the story that they wanted to tell. But writing for the theater was my midlife crisis. I was uh, 44. My mother had died. I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I just felt like the ambition that I had set out for when I was young, I was an actor at Carnegie Mellon, that theater dream I had deferred. So I came back to New York and started pitching myself as a book writer of musicals. But the pieces that I had with me, uh, my musical Bastard Jones and my play Birds of a Feather, you know, one's this, now it's easier to pitch because it's a kooky rock adaptation of Tom Jones uh, with a multiracial cast. But at the time, this is 2010, people were like, I don't get what this is. I don't understand this thing. Uh, it's before Hamilton. And uh, likewise, my, you know, my play about the gay penguins in the Central Park Zoo, it was the head scratcher for everybody as well. So, you know, here I am, I've, I've moved back to New York because I'm from here originally. And I am not getting anywhere in terms of getting meetings, getting people to pay attention to me. And my husband said, you know, you might get further if you pitch yourself as somebody who can doctor somebody else's work. So that happened rather naturally. So for instance, uh, Allegiance, the show that got me to Broadway, I had never heard of that uh, show when I moved to New York. And it was already in development at that point. So I was asked to join that team. I never in a million years would presume to tell a Japanese American story. But since I was invited by a, uh, a team that included Asian Americans as the, as the generators of the story, you know, most notably George Takei, but also Stafford Arima, the director, and Jay Quo, sorry, it took me a second to think about Jay's name. Uh, the, uh, I got, suddenly got him confused with Jay Chow, who is the composer I worked with in China. Anyway, oh, okay. yeah. so, they're, so suddenly I just, they, I, they both got stuck in they my melded, brain. melded, yeah. So in any event, yeah, they melded. Uh, Quo and Cho, you can imagine why. Anyway, the, I was uh, asked to join that team and I discovered that I was able to advance advancing somebody else's work. Likewise with Chasing Rainbows, which is the show that I've written about the adolescence of Judy Garland, which was at the paper mill and Goodspeed. Uh, same thing. That was a show that I was brought into by somebody else. So I pretty much spent the better part of my uh, career in the theater for the last 10 years, essentially making other people's visions come true. So it wasn't that big a stretch for me to take these uh, these two Alan J. Lerner pieces and, and make them happen as well. What was interesting about Paint Your Wagon is that I think it really hadn't been done. It hadn't been retreated and Day Before Spring where you had to like go into the archives and find the music. and Yeah, Day Before Spring was a heavier edit. It required more of a radical rethink because it just uh, was a, a less uh, developed work. The... Uh, the 
uh, give me a second. I'll start again. Yeah. Paint your wagon, on the other hand, I felt just required pruning. It, it's very clear when you really start to work with Alan J. Lerner's work, you can understand that he was a speed freak and so wound tight. This is a man who had to wear white gloves to stop himself from biting his bloody nails. And you can feel it in the writing. You, you can feel the confusion. You know, because I, I started in both cases with a blank page and retyped everything. And there is something about typing other writers' words in your own hands that you, it's almost mystical. You start to feel them in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. It's kind of like, I think maybe the equivalent as an actor, when you're playing somebody else, you, you start to just feel them from the inside out and his Alan J. Lerner's, like I said, sort of just very diffuse mind was very clear to me. You know, the best things that he ever wrote were pieces that were adaptations of other people's work, uh, i.e. My Fair Lady and Camelot. So when he was writing original work, he uh, seemed to really struggle. And those, of course, were both original pieces that uh, were problematic. But ultimately, I was really happy with. I, those were both really uh, happy experiences. Yeah, because in their original productions, they didn't really last that long on Broadway. Critically, commercially, they just weren't really the successes that Brigadoon or My Fair Lady or their other works were. So, so yeah, it. I'm sure it was interesting revisiting stuff that really hadn't been done. Like, Lerner and Lowe are known for those other pieces, but they're not as known for the two that you right. got to work on. Well, and Day Before Spring was a really interesting experience for me artistically. It was a real turning point because it happened to be one of three pieces that I did in development in that spring of 2019. And each one I directed myself, because at that point I had really discovered that I was just increasingly frustrated with trying to communicate my vision to directors. And at that point I had started directing my own work uh, very happily. And in three cases, you know, two other pieces, as well as uh, Day Before Spring, when I looked at the finished product, it was when I say it's exactly what I wanted it to be, it is it met the vision that I had for the circumstances. I mean, that was a one-week rehearsal period at the York, uh, book in hand. However, it absolutely matched what I had in mind. And it's such a satisfying experience to be able to envision something and then see it realized in the way that you want to. And in the case of that and the other two pieces, the response from the higher ups in the world, the, you know, the, the people who might be able to give it money or move it on to the next thing was identical to the response that I got into my work when I first moved to New York, which was the head scratcher. We don't know what to do with it. It doesn't work, blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> they were by definition, quote unquote, a failure in the sense that they didn't, you know, achieve what anyone was hoping that nobody went and saw and said, oh my God, I have to give money to this and move it on. You know, it just yeah. didn't happen. And yet what I discovered was I was so much more satisfied failing on someone else's terms, but succeeding on my own than if I had succeeded on somebody else's terms, but failed on my own. Well, it's the same as actors. Yeah, it's the same as actors when we go into the audition room. Uh, most of the time, we don't get feedback. We're not really sure unless we get a callback mm -hmm. or unless we book it. We don't really know how it was received. But we have to have our own kind of self 
judgment, perception of what it was like in the audition room. And a lot of times, all I can know is that, did I accomplish in the room what I set out to do? Did I tell the story right. I wanted to? Did I do the scene, do the character the way I felt like it should be done? If that resonated, great. If it didn't, you know, then no callback. But I think it's that internal uh, barometer that we have, both as actors and obviously as writers, that kind of dictate, well, this was a success in what I needed to do, whether or not anyone else got it. Exactly. Exactly. So that absolutely uh, has influenced the direction that I'm, I'm moving into in my career because at this point, I am uh, not actively looking to develop other people's work any longer. I am uh, you know, strictly focusing on what I can accomplish between now and the time that I die. So that's the, uh, the goal. And I think that's something we've all thought a lot about uh, in, uh, in the past couple of years. You know, it's... Uh, yeah. Particularly someone my age, but but I think everybody has been really uh, thinking about what their values are, what their priorities are, and what we want to accomplish and do in this life. This gets us to our first story because we will kind of go back about 20 years or so when you were writing your first novel, which was How I Paid for College a novel of sex, theft, friendship, and musical theater. A, a, a very descriptive title. <laughs> and when the novel came out, you say that you backed away from admitting just how autobiographical it was, letting fear really guide you instead. So what parts were autobiographical and what held you back from owning up to these truths in the novel? The basic premise of the book, my father marrying a sociopath, not my mother, uh, my parents were divorced, who then influenced him uh, to really make a rapid change in his support of me as an artist and uh, refusing to send me to study acting very late in the game. Like, you know, I, when I'm already a junior in, in high school and not at all prepared to find another way to support that. Not to mention, I'd say, you know, a, so many of the experiences, uh, the place where it takes a leap is the the degree of criminality in which I, I, I partook. Uh, there are definitely criminal activity in, in the book that I absolutely committed uh, and then some that I did not. But at the time, I really was trying to protect my family from that embarrassment. My father was mortified that I took, you know, the worst moment of our relationship. And, you know, I turned it into a comedy, which was, you know, healing for me. And I thought sort of a fun way of dealing with one's personal trauma, because I thought, oh God, nobody wants to read another memoir about some navel gazing artist. But it didn't matter. He was, you know, at, he couldn't leave the house for three days. He was really upset. Did he know about the book before it came out? We had talked about it and it had, it had caused some problems, but he didn't read it until after it sold, which was at least that was a smart move because then at least he, uh, I was able to say, well, yeah, but it, <laughs> it's in development to be a movie at Columbia Pictures with the producer of Spider-Man. So, you know, he, and given that my dad is very money oriented, it was uh, at least then he could say, oh, well, okay, I, maybe I can get my head around it, but, you know, uh, you know, do what you can to, you know, to protect me. 
So it just caused a lot of family drama, a lot of resentment. Uh, it was, uh, you know, because it had a ripple effect throughout the rest of the, of the family. And I, understand, I do understand that. I mean, I'd be, what kind of writer would I be if I didn't have compassion for that? You know, I, you know, I'm still the, the Aceto with the most uh, Google hits of any other Aceto. So I can, it's not necessarily fun to be related to me if somebody's, you're looking for somebody else and they, their life choices are much more conservative or uh, just, you know, whatever they, you don't want to be you know, defined by someone else that way. I get that. And it only escalated though, because then the, the publisher random house had just recently had a major lawsuit with primary colors, which was the, uh, the Bill Clinton Romano clay. And so they were super nervous. So the legal department then got involved and said, well, how much of your book is true? And then I had to write this enormously embarrassing document where I actually went through the book plot point by plot point and described who it was or who it wasn't. So the legal department could then determine whether or not I had to change it or not. And this is like, you know, who I had sex with in high school. So this, oh my goodness. Yeah, this is one that'll go in the archive, that's for sure. And then at that very same time, I'm going to Hollywood. There was a bidding war for the book. There were like, you know, 10 different studios that were interested. I did the bottled water tour in uh, Los Angeles, where you go from sort of, you know, studio to studio, and there's always somebody there offering you a bottle of water. And Hollywood is very thirsty. So at the same time, I had this manager for about five minutes who didn't work out, but then proceeded to sue me because he felt like he needed a piece of the action. So now I'm getting a lawyer. I mean, this is all within the period of just a few months. So by the time the book came out the following year, I was just like a knot. I mean, it was, it was, there, there was so much stress that the, uh, there's a line that we use in allegiance, which I didn't invent, but it's uh, the nail that sticks up gets hammered first. And that was very much the, the feeling is like you know, that what they call tall poppy syndrome, where you sort of, you know, the, the tallest uh, flower is the one that gets cut. And it was thrilling and exciting. And honestly, there was so much that was great about it. My picture was in People Magazine the month before my 20th high school reunion. So there was a lot that was really awesome about it. And at the same time, seismically disorienting. In writing it, you started, you know, putting these stories down, some you infused with truth, some you embellished and, and created different stories or different characters. And then eventually you started submitting it. So you knew it was going to get out there. Did it register? Like, eventually I'm going to have to tell people, you know, what's true, what's not, or someone is going to recognize themselves in my book. When did that moment hit you? Believe it or not, not until it sold. I was very mindful, very purposeful as I was writing it to keep the voice of what are other people going to think out of my mind. So the only thing I thought about in terms of the audience or how it would be received is I wanted to write 
the funniest, most page-turning book that I could write. So I was thinking about the audience in that regard. But otherwise, I just put it out of my mind because I, I had enough self-awareness at that point, at least, to know that once you allow that voice into your head, that it just cuts off the, the creative flow. So it was once it was done and I got out in the world is when I freaked out. <laughs> right. When I was out on the publicity circuit, I essentially ascribed to what I had learned in media training, which is what I think of as the Miss America school of interviewing, which is no matter what anyone asks you, you answer the question that you wish they had asked. Get to your three talking points as quickly as possible. And I relied on my winning formula and my, my shtick. And I found that after pretty much like a year publicizing this thing, because no sooner is it out and you're doing all of the press and all of that business, then you turn around to do the same thing for the paperback. I got tendonitis in my right shoulder because I found that I so desperately wanted that success and wanted to please people that I would lean in to, to talk to people to, you know, because the thing about being an author is so much of it is one-on-one. -on -one. You're meeting readers at, at readings. Sometimes there's only one person at the reading. That's the person you're meeting. So I'm leaning in all the time, but at the same time, I'm feeling like I want to protect myself. So I started doing this thing where I, I noticed that I was kind of rolling in my right shoulder to partly because my hearing is better in my right ear. So I would sort of lean in that way. And it was as if I was trying to protect my heart and at the same time want to reach out. And, you know, a year of that, and I like I had several years of physical therapy to fix my, you know, frozen right shoulder. And I don't know whether, you know, in retrospect, I don't know whether it would have made a difference if I had been more explicit about what I wrote and, and more honest about it. I don't know if it would have made any difference. I think, frankly, the reason that the book is uh, what's called charitably a, a cult classic, uh, which is another way of saying, you know, it, it was not a bestseller, but it's, you know, it was very well regarded by many people. It, Clearly, I feel emotional about this because I'm struggling to describe it. I think had I been more honest about the derivation of the book, I don't know if that would have made any difference. I'm not, I don't think that would have necessarily made it sell any better. It might have. I might have gotten more publicity that way. I think I personally would have benefited and I would have done it at the expense of hurting other people, which is a very hard place to find yourself. And part of, I think, the reason why the book didn't uh, become a bestseller is because it is very explicitly gay. And if it came out now, it would be very, very different. I think, in, in terms of the way it would be received. Yeah, because 20 years ago, gay marriage wasn't legal. M most politicians didn't want to touch the subject. You know, so it was, it was just a different time. And so touching these subjects that you hit upon in the book would have seemed either off the wall or taboo or whatever reason. 
like I said, it was hard. The, uh, I had a meeting with my agent and my editor after I wrote the sequel and it was not selling well. I, I contend because they mismanaged it. It was sort of a tree falling in the forest. Nobody sort of knew it was there. And I remember we went to Joe Allen's after my reading and we were talking about the book not selling and we're talking about what else could I be writing, et cetera. And I, there was a body language from my editor that I recognized, which is when the hands go on the head and they start to roll across the top of the head. I've seen that body language before and they're sort of shaking their head going, we just don't know what to do with you. And I said, well, how about a book of essays? They said, oh, we've read your essays. They're just too gay. And I said, well, what about David Sedaris? He's huge. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, oh, you're way gayer than David Sedaris. And I just thought, first off, yeah, David Sedaris has a lisp and made his name on NPR as a Christmas elf at Macy's doing an imitation of Billie Holiday, singing No Word from Tom from Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress, I mean, which is a pretty gay thing to be doing. And... And I'm thinking, and I'm gayer than that. Uh, but I think what he meant was, you know, you have uh, butt sex in your, in your books. And David Sedaris does not. Uh, I'm seeing the same thing happen right now with Strange Loop. And that is brilliant as it is. I'm afraid that that's going to really freak out the road producers. Personally, the idea of an original piece written by Michael R. Jackson that gets ignored because of explicit gay sex in favor of a musical about Michael Jackson, an alleged pedophile, disturbs me to the core. I am very troubled by that dynamic right now. That is, uh, that is not a good look for our industry. Well, I've heard great things about the performance of the lead actor. I hear that he is quite outstanding. No, and I, it's not about, it's not, I'm, I've actually heard that the production is actually brilliant and possibly may be the better uh, production. I just can't get past the allegations. Lots of people can, but I, I can't. Your second story that you wanted to talk about, you had an interview with Disney Theatricals <laughs> that you say you sabotaged by trying to be irreverent, but instead ended up just looking like a sexist tool. Yeah. <laughs> and in retrospect, you realized that you should never have been in that room. And for me, as an actor, I go into a lot of rooms, a lot of audition rooms. And if I ever felt like that, that would almost demoralize me. Why did you feel like that you never should have been in that room? It wasn't because I wasn't deserving. It's because I, I was miscast. And I miscast myself in that situation, you know, because I pursued it. What had happened was, again, I had moved to New York. I'm here. I'm at midlife. I'm in a very weird position because I've written these books. So I have fans in the theater. I'm not some kid from nowhere. I'm a middle-aged man who has a fan base. So depending on who I'm talking to, I might be their favorite author that they read in high school, or I might be Mark who, and I never know. And like, when I say favorite, I mean, like somebody meets you and starts to cry. 
somebody's like curtsying and bowing at me, like you're really like not crazy fan, but like just exuberant fan reactions, you know, and I had some important friends. Uh, you know, at that point, I had gotten to know Stephen Schwartz because he had been a fan of the book. He actually blurbed my second book. So I had entree into the business. Uh, I wasn't coming here like a celebrity, like, you know, like uh, somebody who can walk in, like, you know, sting and get a show done. But I wasn't starting from nowhere either. So, but like I said, I wasn't getting traction with my own work because again, I was getting that sort of head scratching, head shaking response of, we just don't know what to do with you. And I met a producer who was interested in developing how I paid for college. This happens about once a year. This book has been in development to be a musical, a mini series, a TV show, a movie, a play so many times. And it, and it still has never taken. So this was one of those times. And this producer, I think very wisely said, I think Adam Schlesinger should write the music. And I thought that's a great idea. Adam Schlesinger, as you know, who uh, uh, died of COVID very early in the pandemic is the composer of uh, The Bedwetter, Sarah Silverman's new musical, along with you know the, the best Tony Award opening numbers you've ever seen and the like. Uh, but uh, most importantly, the reason I knew him is because he has a band, Fountains of Wayne, which is a Jersey band. So I, I knew his sound. I knew his vibe. I thought that is a really good fit. So he arranged for me to go with him to a concert of Fant Fountains of Wayne down at the Bowery Ballroom. And he said, I'm going to invite my friend who's an executive at Disney Theatricals to go as well. You should really meet one another. So we all met. We went and saw the concert. We had a great time. It was a lot of fun. Fast forward, I've had a few meetings with this executive, and then she then introduces me to her boss. So I'm, I'm moving up the ladder at Disney Theatricals, and we're sitting in the meeting, and he asks, you know, just the most innocent of questions, which is, how did you two meet? And she says, oh, we went to this concert together. Uh, the, this other you know, person introduced us and took us to this concert uh, to see Fountains of Wayne down at the Bowery Ballroom. And without missing a beat, I heard myself say, yeah, I did cocaine off her ass in the bathroom. <laughs> and <laughs> my gosh. Yeah. I could only imagine her face when uh, you well, said that. You know, uh, she still spoke to me in the years to come. We had other meetings. We'd gone out to dinner. She invited me to her house. So I, I think she understood my intent, which I was to be irreverent. And because I'm gay, I wasn't meant in any way to be like some kind of jerky misogynist thing. And yet, in retrospect, I am haunted by that smile and laugh on her face. And I think now in retrospect, oh, right. That was one of those moments that women have to deal with, with assholes like me, particularly the gay guys who think we can be, we have a certain amount of latitude. Looser with things. Yeah. Yeah. Looser with things when in fact we are just as bad, if not worse than any uh, sexist uh, heterosexual men. And the so, it, and the, but the only thought in, in the moment was, oh my God, do you really not want this job? That's honestly what I thought. And I've, 
It's very analogous to something that I would do on book tour too. And you'll be very pleased to know I haven't done to you, uh, which is I would get on a radio show, I'd get on a TV show, and instantly there'd be this, I don't know, this like sort of subversive part of me that would try to unsettle the host. Like just try to do something that's going to freak them out and make them go, ah, you know. And again, the thought afterwards, like, why, why am I biting the hand that feeds me? Why did I feel the need to subvert these situations in order to assert myself as somebody rebellious who doesn't want to be part of this big commercial machine and yet so desperately want to be, quote unquote, successful? What, what's going on in my mind that, that I'm there? Uh, and it's taken me so long to finally own the fact that as bougie as I am and as mainstream as I am in so many ways, I do have a subversive, very offbeat socialist viewpoint and that I'm not a good candidate for corporate entertainment, even though there's some corporate entertainment that I really enjoy and respect. You know, there's certain, I watched Encanto recently and I just thought this is fantastic, first rate commercial entertainment that's putting a lot of good in the world in so many ways, uh, not the least of which is that it addresses exceptionalism and dismantles exceptionalism. So I, I think that's fantastic. And at the same time, there are far more pieces of corporate entertainment, like I mentioned MJ earlier, that I find enormously troubling and would not want to be a part of. Well, but but that's that tug of war that Broadway just is. For every fun home, there is Mamma Mia. And this is the wide range of shows that can be both entertaining or eye-rolling or dramatic or you know, no one goes to see it. So it, Broadway is tough because it does have to sell. Because you don't sell on Broadway, it's not going to last. Mm -hmm. As you've discovered, right. as uh, Lerner and Lowe discovered in their musicals uh, that didn't do as well. So, yeah, yeah, Broadway is just this weird little tough market that can be hard to find that balance. Because you're an artist. You want to make a difference. You want to tell a story that engages. But you also want to have 1,500 butts in those seats every night to make money at it. Right. And it's... Absolutely. That's a push and pull, I think, that every artist feels. And in my time left on the planet, my interest is returning to the fun homes of this world. And with that success, with that notoriety that came from it, what would you say that you learned from that that you have then carried with you these 20 years since? Unfortunately, it's a lesson that I had to learn more than once. I'm, I'm definitely a late bloomer in all things. And what I learned, which is the power of single-minded focus. I'm a very diffuse thinker. I have synesthesia, which is a neurological phenomenon where you associate uh, numbers and uh, words and letters with color. Uh, and it permeates everything in my life in that everything reminds me of something else. So it's, uh, my mind is like a, uh, like a pinball machine designed by Salvador Dali. It's a very complicated place to be all the time and it can be quite exhausting. So single-minded focus is really hard for me. 
I'll tell two success stories <laughs> followed by one failure story. And the, <laughs> the first success story was indeed the sale of the book. My husband and I had been running a business that we sold, which enabled me to take a year to not work and finish the book. And we took a huge risk in doing that. And when we sold the business, I said to him, a year from now, I will have sold this book. And a year later, I am so not making this up, on the exact day, we were walking onto the lot of Sony Pictures to discuss the movie adaptation of the book. And that kind of single-minded focus, I moved to New York in 2010, and I said, in five years, I will have a show on Broadway. And once again, five years, practically to the day, Allegiance opened on Broadway. And what was such a valuable lesson to me about that was I had set that intention. My screensaver for five years was a picture of Times Square with 2015 superimposed over it. Every single day, my focus was on what can I do to get to Broadway? And if whatever I'm doing is not going to get me to Broadway, try not to do it. And I got to Broadway writing a show I'd never heard of when I came up with the ambition, which I think is one of the great lessons of uh, visualization, which is that there is power in the focus and you also can't get fixated on how you get there because you never know how, what circumstances are going to arrange themselves to, to aid you. And I actually don't think it's necessarily even mystical. I think it's more like an organizing principle for your, for your brain and that you tend to then make choices based on it, attract uh, experiences to you. And then the mistake that I made after that, you know, shortly after Allegiance opened, which again was a very tumultuous experience because, you know, the show uh, was, uh, uh, was not a success. I mean, we <laughs> basically, we lost, you know, $12 million of somebody else's money. And the uh, don't quote, I don't, I'm not, I don't know if it was 12 million, something like that. Many millions of dollars were lost. Uh, and yes, we made a profound impact on a lot of people's lives. And it was a, such a great experience, but it was also, as you can imagine, um, you know, uh, difficult. And afterwards, though, there was that moment of, oh, now what? And I made a list of goals and since there were so many different things I wanted to be doing, I did not have one single focus. So, and I had a, I have a three and a half year plan with several steps. And when I got to three and a half years later, which was 2019, at the very time that I met you for the first time, I had realized that I had not, I'd made progress in all the things I wanted to make progress, but I hadn't achieved it. What I took away from that was because I hadn't focused on one single most important thing around which everything else could, could revolve. So the last couple of years have been about being able to determine that again. That's a long time to learn a life lesson. Being a teacher as well, Mark is very focused on the lessons he can impart to his students not only in the ways that they can grow as artists, but how they can also learn from the challenges and mistakes along the way. In this week's audition story, Mark talks about a brilliant performer who nailed her audition, but still wasn't cast in the show. It's certainly a familiar story to any actor who walks out of an audition room feeling on top of the world, 
only for days and weeks to go by hearing nothing, and eventually seeing a cast list without their name on it. But Mark's story of this auditioner doesn't end there. Now, special episodes like these are available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So, if you'd like to lend your financial support to this podcast while also getting access to bonus content like the audition stories, then please consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe, or just look for the link in the show notes. We pick up in my interview with Mark with story number three, as he talks about directing his first film and probably the steepest learning curve of his career. Since before the pandemic, I've been very keen on developing low-budget art house film musicals. I feel like there is possibly a platform and a market for irreverent offbeat entertainment that used to be able to be done off off Broadway or off Broadway that could happen online or, you know, streaming or whatever that you know, future looks like. Because for every fun home, every season, because typically there's only one, there's usually only one sort of arty piece amongst the 10 or 11 or 12 musicals that open that season. And, you know, Broadway is a zero sum game. It, there's statistically there has never been a season on Broadway where more than three musicals have run more than two years. So if any season you can, like at the beginning of the season, look at what's going to open or at the end of the season, look at what opened. And I guarantee you two years later, seven out of 10 will be gone. It's just the way it works. And like, so like baseball and Broadway are the only two places where you could fail seven times out of 10 and be considered a success. So for every fun home, for every Hades town, there's 10 other shows that are just as worthy that don't get into the pipeline to out into the rest of the world because there's no other way to give the imprimatur of, uh, of, of, of their uh, value. There's the wonderful show Playwrights Horizons 10 years ago called The Shags that I just thought was brilliant. And you know, it, was brilliant. It played at Playwrights Horizons. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. But it can't transfer because it's a atonal punk rock musical that tells a story that is actually quite disturbing. So where does it go? And I've checked on it. It doesn't go much of anywhere. And that to me is just so tragic that, that that's the end of the line. And I, I learned this lesson. In 2017, I took that first musical I wrote called Bastard Jones which is a rock musical adaptation of Henry Fielding's The History of Tom Jones. And I used whatever capital I'd gotten working on Broadway to be able to raise the money to get it done off off Broadway at the cell. Uh, and it was a New York Times critics pick and it got glorious reviews and it got a lot of a good attention. And yet, once again, I have people scratching their heads going, I don't know what to do with it. However, there was one funder who said, no, I, I could put two million behind this. And six months later, he was dead. And believe it or not, that is the second time that the producer has died on me. Uh, the first one was How I Paid for College. The producer of the film was Laura Ziskin, who quite famously started stand-up cancer in response to her own cancer. So 
it's like, you know, on top of everything else, of all the challenges you have to have. And then you have to, to deal with the fact that, you know, we're dealing with human beings, you know. Uh, but, you know, to twice have a dream deferred because the producer died was a lesson for me in terms of saying, all right, I don't want to pursue that big money dream. Uh, if I could raise half a million dollars or $1 million or $1.5 million instead of $10 million or $20 million, I could make a credible low-budget film, which is why I made a movie over Zoom during COVID. <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, Zoom brought out a lot of us. I mean, podcasting went, mm -hmm. went up because people were at home and they wanted to record something. Streaming, mm -hmm. Zooming, all these different mediums then started to be more tangible to us and more useful. So it kind of spurred us all to figure out a new way to do things. I, I assume that was kind of what led to it for you. Actually, well, yes and no. Yes, it, the pandemic spurred it, but not in the way you would think necessarily because I had actually been pushing for this dream for a, a couple of years prior. Once that producer died in 28, uh, right before uh, 2018, I said, you know what? Forget it. I, if I'm going to raise a million dollars, I don't want it to be for an off-Broadway show that I'm dependent on people having to leave their houses to go see. And if it gets a bad review or it snows, nobody goes. I'm going to raise a million dollars. I'm going to make a movie instead because you can make, I was taking my, taking a page out of low budget horror, which is one of the most successful, profitable movie making genres because you can make them so cheaply because you can film them in one location. You know, there's a reason why the song, uh, the call's coming from inside the house. And that's because all you need is a house. So. I thought, at least for the kind of musicals I want to write, they take place in a surreal psychological landscape. They don't require, in fact, I don't even want all those big production values. And what's more, most people look at entertainment on their digital device. So frankly, Julie Andrews on an Alp doesn't look nearly as good as Fre uh, Fred Astaire dancing with a coat rack on your phone. So I... I had been pushing for this and then the pandemic happened and suddenly everybody was, and their brother was, you know, suddenly trying to uh, pivot to Zoom again, bringing up another <laughs> failure. Uh, I've made a whole career out of failing upwards, by the way, uh, you know, because I was ahead of the curve when it came to writing about uh, theater kids. Nobody had written a book about theater kids before I did in 2004. And then High School Musical came out. And then Glee came out. And then I watched the wave go without me and then finish. <laughs> and <laughs> there I was. Uh, and I thought, I am not going to let that happen again. I cannot. I had this idea before everybody else. I, I, I can't watch everybody else succeed at this and not do something about it. And as luck would have it, though, it, the pandemic enabled two crucial pieces for me to actually get a proof of concept made. One, uh, Storm Large, who is a, a singer-songwriter and a good friend of mine from Portland, uh, who I had wanted to do this project with for quite some time, but we had never been able to figure out how to do it because she's on the road 300 days a year because she's a working uh, indie singer-songwriter. Suddenly she is grounded. She can't go anywhere. 
So she is mine. I can, you know, once the initial weirdness passed, we were able to figure out how to, to get her into a room and film her. And two, because I had some, uh, some very lovely affluent friends who are big supporters of the arts, I simply said to them, how would you like to put a skeleton crew of 10 artists to work for two weeks? And they said, done. Like the, the, because everyone was feeling like, you know, remember, uh, as you were, as you know, we, everybody was out of work. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they felt like they were art supporters, but giving money to an institution wasn't going to do any good at that moment. And they were feeling frustrated that they couldn't do more. And I said, well, let's put 10 people to work. And so that's what we did. We did a, we put together, we filmed it in their basement. I directed it over Zoom, uh, this movie called Mad Woman. And I, don't recommend directing a movie over Zoom, but it's what I had to do. But like I said, that enabled me to be able to, to actually get the film made, which I wouldn't have been able to make otherwise. I don't, it's very hard to get a short film funded because there's no upside. Right, right. Unless it somehow gets on one of those film circuits and then gets some Oscar buzz. Yeah, what's the point of a short film in that commercial sense? Right, exactly, exactly. But what was that difference? Because you had been in theater, now you're in film. So what was that steep learning curve for you? The steep learning curve for me on this, I, I talk about failing upwards. I, I just made technical mistake after technical mistake that constantly had to be fixed in post. Now, luckily you can fix in post. For instance, I wanted this inky black background and it wasn't lit correctly to get what I wanted. It was really important to me to get this kind of deep space feeling. And so... The producers very generously agreed to fund getting it rotoscoped. Essentially, like you would green screen, except it wasn't filmed in front of a green screen. But that can be done afterwards. So we sent all these files to India, uh, to this firm to do it. And they came back and I didn't know what I was looking at. I had somebody else look at them. And then it turns out when when we started really working with the files, discovered that we had sent the low-res versions, not the high-res versions. And that's why they weren't looking good. So I had just wasted $2,000 of somebody else's money for something that I couldn't do anything with. And I had to go back to the producers and say, I don't expect you to pay for this, but here's the situation. And I just want to cry when I think about it. Their names are Rick and Hallie Sadel. They are, uh, they're a married couple. And I could talk about them forever, but suffice to say, they just said to me, well, this is your film school. And I said, yeah, but you didn't sign up to put me through school. <laughs> right, to educate like, I, you, yes. Yeah, you know, again, that, was not, that was not the deal. The deal was, let's make this movie and get it onto the film festival circuit and use it as a calling card to be able to make features. It was not to, you know, pay for my mistakes. But they got it. <sighs> I didn't even know how to, I don't have... You know what it is? I, I'm not sure I have sort of the, the thesis statement of that whole experience because it, it hasn't finished yet. You know, we're just getting out and, and getting it out in the world. But it was a definite reminder for me of just how much time it takes to do something at the level it, that you, you want it to be accomplished. You know, the three months that Fred Astaire would take to rehearse one dance routine. That's how long it takes if you want to get it to a certain level of excellence. 
And that's why I really think so seriously about the remaining time I have left because I'm 56 years old. And I know how it is not unreasonable for a project to take 10 years to get to fruition or even longer. So when you start to do the math at my age, you start to realize, okay, so what can possibly get done? It's not like I've got one foot in the grave, but you know, if, if I've got something that could take another 10 years, I really have to think seriously about what I'm going to do with that time. So I find myself kind of going back to that viewpoint I had when I was writing the book or trying to get on Broadway, that focus of, okay, if it's not going to get me towards the particular goal, try not to do it. Well, it gets back to that, that sense of we don't have so much time. We only have so much energy. We have limited resources. Yes, it's great to bring people in and have that support system, a community, a team with us. But each of us individually, we only have so much to give. And as you say, as you see that end, whether it's 70, 80 years old, 90, you know, however far we're going to go, there needs to be a purpose as we head toward that end and what that's going to mean and what we're going to leave behind to others. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's heavy stuff. And, the, you know, people who work in banks or uh, <laughs> real estate or, you know, sort of muggle jobs, I think don't wrestle with these existential questions the way artists do. We, uh, and I, I suppose they, you could say they're quite lucky in that regard that this is just another day at work for us, what we're talking about. Yeah. I wouldn't have it any other way. But it is, you know, I won't say it's hard because it's not. Hard is being a frontline worker. You know, hard is being in Ukraine. It is complex and complicated and unique, though. That's for sure. Well, this complicated life that you have built for yourself was a joy to listen to. And I appreciate you sharing so many bits and pieces of it with us. So I'm, I'm grateful that you came on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. I feel like it's been a, uh, a therapy session that I got for free. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining Mark Aceto and myself today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with his audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. These were very confrontive questions, and I decided that I would answer them honestly out of service to particularly young people. I just thought, you know, there's nothing to be gained for, for them, for me to hold back and not give the unvarnished truth. You'll find a link to his final five answers in the show notes, as well as a link to that short film he created called Mad Woman, which was just released this year. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It.